Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us here on this Palm Sunday at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter. Mark chapter 12. And this is Palm Sunday, and it is a Sunday on our church calendar when we, we tend to always remember and remind ourselves of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what would be the last time for him to go there. And it is the beginning, it's what launches us into uh, the celebration of, of, of Holy Week. And we might even, many times we often also call it Passion Week. And I think both of those terms are appropriate because what took place in that final week of Jesus' life is certainly holy, but it was also certainly passionate. Uh, passion is a word that in our common vernacular we always tend to to, to link it up with the understanding of, of love. And I think that's very much an appropriate thing. You know, when, we're, when you're passionate about someone or something, that typically means that you love that very much. But, but, but love is, is also, passion is also not just connected to love, but it's connected to the idea of, of suffering as well. If you truly love someone, if you're passionate about them, you are willing to go to great lengths to sacrifice yourself for them, even to suffer on their behalf. And when we get to this understanding of Passion Week, we see that those two things really come into play, particularly for Jesus. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, the two concepts of His love and His suffering come together and meet, and they converge. In fact, it was on Friday, is on the, what we determined to be Good Friday, that we know that Jesus' love is displayed through His unflinching willingness and His... his uh, through his humiliation and he suffers at the scorn and the brutality and ultimately his death on the cross for the sake of sinners just like you and me. Now if you've been with us in, at any part during the last few months and we were, we've been studying through the gospel of Mark and, and we, uh, we've already looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, the city of Jerusalem during what began Passion Week. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we studied that. But then we also looked at what happened once he got there, that he went into the temple on that Monday and, and he overturned the, the money changers' tables and, and, and all of those that were selling, uh, merchants that were selling there. And, and we also studied about him cursing the fig tree on his way going in. And we've looked at what that means and the significance of that event for our lives. And, and now what we find is that he is back in the temple, according to Mark chapter 12, on the Tuesday of Passion Week. And he has been confronted by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They have come to him and they have confronted him. And their confrontation of him really brings out this question. Who are you to come in here and do the things in this temple that you've done? Who gave you the authority to do the things that you've done. And this confrontation between Jesus and the Sanhedrin that took place on this Tuesday of Passion Week really alerts us to the ominous event that would have occurred just three days later when Jesus Christ would be crucified on the cross. And he had been predicting this all along. Jesus knew this was coming. In fact, back in chapter 8, verse 31, we read that he told his disciples there that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Just in, back in chapter 10, verse 33, we read that Jesus told his disciples, Behold, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. You see, Jesus obviously knew what was coming. He knew what would happen to him once he had gotten there to Jerusalem during Passion Week. 
And now here he is. He's in the temple. He's right there in the epicenter of Jewish cultural life and their religion. And he's surrounded by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the very ones that he had said would come and would kill him. And so the question is, what is he going to do? Is he going to put up his fists and fight? Is he going to turn and run away? No. What we see is that in his passion, in his love, and in his willingness to suffer on behalf of those that he came to save, Jesus does something that probably may surprise most of us. He told a story. Jesus tells a parable. And it's a parable that when we examine it, gets down to the very heart of the reason for why he came. So let's read this parable together. Let's hear the words of our Savior as he reads, as he tells us this story, beginning in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. And he says this, A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a place for the wine vat and he built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him, that is the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones and they wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another. And him they killed and many others, beating some killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Will, he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read, even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, that is the Sanhedrin, sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them so they left him and went away brothers and sisters this is the word of God for the people of God let's pray together this morning father thank you for your word and thank you for this passage of scripture that opens up for us so much I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of this passage help us to be able to understand it and then to apply it to be able to recognize the passion that you have for us, even lost sinners. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. This parable that Jesus told is, is really an, an allegory. It, it is a, it's a story that represents everything in it, represents somebody or something. And understanding who and what is represented in this parable really is the key to helping us understand and unlock the full meaning of the parable. Because as you recognize there at the end of, or in the middle of verse 12, we see that it was the religious leader's recognition that this parable was actually spoken 
about them and really as a, as a measure of something being ultimately against them that caused them to want to put their hands on Jesus and to have him arrested and to have him killed. Jesus begins this parable by, by saying this. There was a man who, who, who took a piece of land and he turned that piece of land into a vineyard. He did this by planting a hedge around the perimeter of the property that he owned. And that hedge would have been something that would have been so thick and gnarly that it would have prevented boars, wild animals from coming in through the hedge to come into the vineyard in order to root out the, the vines and, to, and to, to eat the fruit. And so that was the first thing that he did was he put a hedge around the perimeter of the, of the land. The next thing that he did was that he dug a vat, he dug a pit in the middle of it. And this would have been the wine press. This would have been where the grapes, once they were harvested, were placed. And once they were crushed, that juice would flow then from, from the, the vat into a larger vat where you would be able to, to get the juice. Then he also built a tower in the middle of that vineyard. And that tower would have served as a place of storage. It would have served as a place of shelter. And it also would have served as a place where the, the ones who were tending to the vineyard could have stood and they could have seen all around the vineyard and even outside of it in case there was any attack that was coming on it. This man, when he took this piece of property, did everything. He thought of everything that needed to be thought of in order to create a beautiful, wonderful crop-producing vineyard that would not only produce income for himself, but for those who were there to farm it. Now, we also recognize that having done all of that work, he leased it out to some tenants who would come in and, and be the vine dressers. And then he went to a far country. And what we learn about him is that he was an absentee farm owner. He was an absentee vineyard owner. Now, the details that Jesus provides us here in verse 1 of this parable really are similar to those found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. You may want to go home and read that passage for yourself and study it a little deeper. I want to read just a little bit of it to you because of the parallels between what Jesus has told us here in verse 1 and what Jeremiah writes to us in, excuse me, Isaiah writes to us in Isaiah 5. He says this, he said, my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill and he dug it up and he cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine and he built a tower in its midst and he also made a wine press in it. That sounds very similar to what Jesus has just said. But then he goes on and says this, he says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus told parables, a lot of times they were kind of difficult to understand. They were very difficult for us to understand who and exactly, and Jesus had to go on and explain it. But to these that he told this parable, to these, the Sanhedrin, to these religious leaders and to these Old Testament scholars who would have been very familiar with their Old Testament scripture, when Jesus began telling this parable, there would have been no doubt as to who he was referring and they would have known very well that the, the, the vineyard owner who was an absentee vineyard owner would have represented God the Father and that the vineyard that was there would have represented Israel. And so this is what Jesus, this is how he begins. Notice though in verse 2, though he was an absentee vineyard owner, what he expected was to come back and to receive payment for the land. And how he would receive that payment would be giving, a, he would be given a certain percentage of the 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 crop that was being produced on the vineyard. I'm told that it takes about four years to plant a grapevine and for that grapevine to mature and then to begin actually producing grapes. Now, the reason why I think that's important is because if that's the case, then we can imagine that this 
this landowner, this vineyard owner, had been absent for quite a while. The vine dressers had been there working and tilling the land, getting, getting that vine ready to produce fruit. All the while, the vineyard owner had been absent. He had been in a far country. But now we see that the time for the harvest had come. And so he sends one of his servants to the vineyard and to the tenants to receive his payment. But something awful happened. When the servant arrived, the tenants of the vineyard, Jesus says, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's just terrible and shocking news. And it goes completely against the agreement that had been set upon to begin with. This was not how things were supposed to be. And no doubt when the servant arrived back to his master and told him what had happened, there was shock and dismay in his house too. Nevertheless, notice what the vineyard owner does. He sends another servant, another emissary to collect his payment. But just as we learned it happened with the first one, when he arrived, these tenants, they threw stones at him, they wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. Shockingly, they did worse than they did the first time. But what's even more shocking is that the landowner sends another one. He sends another servant back into the same mess. And what happens there, Jesus says, is they killed him. In fact, we learn that the violence toward the servants of the landowner who had come as his representatives escalated and went from bad to worse. And what we learn is that this pattern of behavior just continued and continued with one after the next being beaten, some killed, some just being turned away, having been brutally treated. Now remember, everybody and everything in this parable is representative of someone. We've established already that the absentee landowner represents God the Father and that the vineyard itself represents Israel. And what we come to recognize here is that those servants who were sent by the vineyard owner again and again and again represents all the prophets of the Old Testament that God continued to send to his people. He had sent them to Israel and again and again they had rejected him. In fact, listen to how God describes Israel's reaction to the prophets that he sent to them. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, we read this. God says to the prophet, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants to the prophets to, uh, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their necks. We also read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Verses 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets. This was the shameful way that Israel treated the prophets that God sent to them. But I want you to know it didn't just stop with mocking it didn't just stop with them stopping up their ears. No, they brutally treated those same prophets that we read about. In fact, we find in Old Testament scripture that Elijah the prophet was driven into the wilderness. Zechariah was stoned to death at the, that near the altar. Jeremiah was beaten and put into stocks. Uriah was killed with a sword. And tradition has it that Isaiah the prophet was actually brutally sawn in two. Of course, we know having studied Mark's gospel, what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded. These are among the shameful ways 
that Israel treated the prophets that God sent to them again and again and again. And understanding that, it is here that I want to point out to you the very first thing that I think we need to take from this text as a way of application and also a way of information. And the very first point that I've given to you on your outline is this, this morning. I want you to notice the extraordinary nature of God's patience. The extraordinary nature of God's patience. Consider what the repeated sending of those prophets to Israel means. Think about it from the perspective of this parable. That, that the servants came back again and again, tail tucked between their legs, and yet God sent another one. After the very first one, many of us would probably think, well, that would be the time to put together a militia, and let's go down there, and with brute force, we will exact punishment on them who had treated my servants so badly, and we will, get, we will take our payment from them. Many of us, that would be the way that we would respond. But instead, this landowner sent another servant, and then another and then another, and then another. And on the surface, that, really, that action may not make sense to us. But what we, when we examine those actions more closely, what we are confronted with is something that's very important for us to consider about the nature of God. You see, what we come to understand is that just like this vineyard owner, God extends an extraordinary amount of patience toward those who reject Him. He is patient with us even when we reject him consider what the scriptures tells us about God in Psalm 86 verse 15 he says the, the psalmist says but you O Lord are a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering read patient there and you are abundant in mercy and truth the 103rd Psalm 8th verse reads this way the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger Read patient, and you are abounding in mercy. The Apostle Peter writes it this way in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering. He is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Brothers and sisters, this is the nature of our God who is patient with us, extraordinarily so. I like how Jeff Thomas has summarized the motive behind the vineyard owner's extraordinary patience that he displayed in this parable. He says this landowner really loved the tenants of his vineyard. And he was giving them chance after chance to repent and give him his due. Now, if we understand that, that really makes the response of these tenants very, very shocking. And that brings me to the next point that I have for you on your outline this morning. The next thing I want you to recognize that this text brings out to us is this. It is the astounding rejection of God's kindness. The astounding rejection of God's kindness. You see, this vineyard owner, he showed mercy. And his patience is truly extraordinary. But it goes, it goes even further than that. Verse 6 is a really amazing verse. Think about it. He says, therefore, still having one son, his beloved son, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. I only have one son. I cannot imagine sending my one son into a situation 
like these servants of this landowner found themselves. And he knew what the circumstances were because he had had repeated examples of his servants coming back to him, some beaten and brutalized, others dead from how they were treated. And yet he sent his son, his beloved son, into that same exact situation. You know, it's not very hard for us to figure out who this son in this parable represents. It can only be Jesus. Consider the, consider the opening two verses of the book of Hebrews. There the writer of Hebrews says this, God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past by the fathers and the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Jesus Christ came. He was the final prophet to come. Furthermore, the fact that the father only had one son tells us that Jesus Christ, was, and he was the beloved son, tells us that Jesus was referring to himself. You'll recall what happened that we looked at last week at Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. When he went in the water, the heavens opened, and the father himself spoke down from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We also read this in 1 John 4 verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Jesus, the one and only Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, was sent by the Father as the final messenger. He was the final emissary. He was sent to deliver the message of God the Father's grace but also of His justice to those who tended the Father's vineyard. He was sent to offer these wicked, vile, and murderous tenants another chance to obey their Lord. But notice what happens in verses 7 and 8. In the face of such extraordinary patience and amazing kindness, those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. Recalcitrant stubborn, obstinate, unmoved. Those are just some of the words that came to my mind when I studied this passage. And the way that these tenant vine dressers treated the, vine, the vineyard owner and his servants, and now his son. And while in its context, we know that this parable was, was told in order to indict the Sanhedrin who were confronting Jesus who undoubtedly represented these wicked and evil tenants in the vineyard, I can't help but consider the application of this parable to many of us in this room. I quoted Jeff Thomas earlier. I want to read another quote from a sermon that he preached on this passage. He asks this question. He says, would I be wrong in saying to you that the Lord has been gracious to you? What blessings you have had from Him, families, health, Prosperity, intelligence, friends, peace, success. Haven't you much for which to give thanks to God? Aren't you debtors to God? He has dealt so kindly with you. He's been a good, generous, and patient God to you. But then he goes on and he laments that so many are just like these farmers in this parable of our Lord that it represents so, that they represent so much God has represented so much kindness to them 
And they're recipients of that kindness. But they repay it with contempt. And you may say, well, how am I paying God back? How am I repaying him with contempt? Well, John makes it very clear in his gospel that Jesus is God's only and beloved son. Sent by the Father not to condemn the world. Why? Because the world already stands condemned before him. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but rather God the Father sent his son in order to save the world. According to John 3 verse 19, that light has come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Listen, friend, every time someone testifies to you concerning the goodness and mercy of God, every time you hear the scriptures read that tell you about God's grace and his mercy, that Jesus died for you in order to pardon you from your sins, every time you come face to face with God's patience and with his abundant loving kindness for which you are unworthy and undeserving, Every time the Lord stretches out his hand to you in forgiveness and you reject it, you are in effect sticking your finger in the eye of God and treating with contempt the very grace and mercy that he patiently extends to you. Therefore, it is imperative that we not miss what Jesus says next in verse 9. Because he says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Listen, if your heart will not be warmed by the patience and the kindness of God, then perhaps you will be awakened by what Jesus reveals next. Notice the next point on your outline this morning. It's this, the crushing severity of God's judgment. You see, the tenant vine dressers play, played the vineyard owner for a fool. Perhaps, perhaps they thought he was a pushover. Perhaps they thought he was just somebody that they could manipulate and do with whatever they wanted to do. Maybe they thought that the owner was dead, and so that's the reason why the son showed up is because the owner's dead, and so if they kill him, then they will by default become the owners of the vineyard themselves. Whatever their motive and whatever they thought, they were, they were evidently wrong because, you see, when the father sent his son, he sent him as an ultimatum. And the terms of the deal simply were this, either accept the son or else. But in response, these tenant vine dressers killed the son and in doing so, they rejected the vineyard owner's final offer of mercy. They showed no repentance. And so Jesus says, as a result, the, fi the father will come in vengeance and he will destroy the, vineyard, the vine dressers and he will give the vineyard to others. Now to the Sanhedrin, who stood there listening to this parable, the implication couldn't have been any clearer. Jesus was telling them in the plainest of terms that God's judgment against them would come and that the nation of Israel would, would suffer. And when the history would show, just a little less than four decades later, that would come true because the very temple in which they would stand at that moment would be completely destroyed as well as the rest of Jerusalem when the Romans would come through and ransack and destroy what had been the epicenter of Jewish culture and religion. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He has written that though they were given the opportunity to repent, they instead hardened their hearts against the one who exposed their need and resolved with unmitigated bitterness to be rid of his influence. They foolishly thought they could emerge unscathed, but time proved Jesus right and the vineyard of God was given to others. The lesson is just simply this. You cannot continue to harden yourself against the kindness and the patience of God that has been so clearly 
and finally demonstrated through Jesus and expect to come out okay in the end. No, the scriptures, the scriptures are crystal clear. As we noted earlier, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if that offer of repentance is rejected, then there can be no further expectation other than the full and righteous judgment of God's wrath. That leads me to the last thing that I want you to see that Jesus makes clear in this passage this morning. The fourth and final point on your outline is this. We see the ultimate vindication of God's Son. The ultimate vindication of God's Son. Following the parable Jesus quoted from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, this is one of the Hallel Psalms. It's quoted very often in the New Testament. Peter preaches from it and uses it as part of his text in Acts chapter 4. He also writes about it in 1 Peter 2, verse 7 and 8. And then Paul also writes about it and quotes it from in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Let me read it for you one more time. He says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus compares what happened to the vineyard owner's son as being something that would happen when builders were taking all the, the stones in that they were going to use to construct a building. And one stone came in and it was of an odd size and an odd shape. And though they threw it away, they said, get rid of it. It's not worth having. It's not worth having here. We don't want it. But notice that Jesus says that very stone that was rejected by those builders has instead become the chief cornerstone. In other words, that stone that they threw away was actually perfectly shaped and sized to be the capstone, to be the stone which everything else held together. The builders had stamped the word rejected on that stone, but God came back and erased that word and replaced it with his own, and it was the word vindicated. And what we should remember is that just a few days later, this parable that Jesus told would move from being just a mere story to something that was lived out. You see, this, these same men, this Sanhedrin, would pass their judgment against the Lord Jesus and he would be handed over to the Romans who would ultimately nail him to a cross and crucify him on Golgotha's hill. From their perspective, they would have put to death this blasphemer, this one who usurped their authority. And upon him, they would have written the word rejected once and for all, but three days later. God the Father raised the one that they had rejected and killed from the grave. And at that moment, the Father pronounced the Son's vindication. And one day, just as I quoted to you from Philippians 2 last week, one day, Jesus' vindication will be fully known to all men, to those in heaven, to those on earth, to those under the earth, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Christ to the Lord. He is Christ the Lord of the glory of God the Father. And because that is the case, then, let me state for you my sermon in a sentence this morning. And I pray that you will listen to these words that I say to you today. Because Jesus is God's only and beloved Son, the only sure foundation for our lives, to reject Him is to refuse God's offer of mercy and grace and to invite His wrath. Therefore, in light of this text, let me ask you, do you recognize the great kindness and the mercy that God the Father has extended to you? Are your eyes able to see and is your mind able to comprehend the tremendous blessings and the great patience that he has shown to you? 
Do you recognize that simply by your being here in this place today, he is once again demonstrating his grace and his patience with you? Why then would you continue to reject him? Why would you turn your back upon him? Why would you dismiss the love and the mercy of God that has been extended to you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it well. He said, remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, you have shut against yourself the, the one door of hope. I pray. My prayer for you this entire week and my prayer for you right now has been that your heart will be humbled before the Lord and that you will receive Him on His terms. If you have done that, if you can truthfully say to your heart, I know that he has sent his one and only son to save me from my sins. And my faith is in him. My confidence is in him. My hope is in him. Then I want to invite you to the Lord's table this morning. I want to invite you to the opportunity that we have to remind ourselves in a physical way of who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do for us. To remind ourselves of his passion. And as we observe this Lord's Supper this morning, if you have not come to that place, then I want you to allow this to be yet another witness to you of God's mercy and grace. Let it be another display of his mercy and grace before your eyes. And then, if you've never humbled yourself before the Lord, by faith received his offer of pardon and forgiveness, I simply ask that you allow this testimony of this Lord's Supper to be a testimony to you. As we come this morning, Deacons are going to take these trays and in them there's going to be, going to be some wafers. We're going to pass those out. If you've trusted in Christ to be your Savior, you're invited to partake of that. And as you do, understand that this is representative of Christ's body. A body that was crucified on a Roman cross just as we've already discussed this morning. And it is a testimony of His passion for you. His love for you. His willingness to sacrifice for you so that you can be pardoned from your sins. And so this morning as we partake of this, I invite you to consider the great passion and love of our Lord and Savior. Father, as we come before this table today, I pray that your, our hearts would continue to be warmed by the fact that you are a gracious, patient, kind God who sent your one and only beloved Son into this world we might receive salvation. Father, allow this time of testimony and remembrance to impact us, not only today, but throughout the rest of our lives, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
body of Christ. Take me. I found the passage today just to be an appropriate time also for us to observe the Lord's Supper because in just a moment we're going to pass out the cup and in that cup is going to be juice and the fruit of the vine, red in color. And it would have been the ultimate goal of that vineyard owner to produce wine like that and to have it in abundance. And yet what we recognize is that when Jesus came, his blood was poured out poured out so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. And so in many respects, the fruit of the vine then became a way by which we could understand that which happened to Jesus. That, that his blood came from him and, and the redness of that color, when, we, when we're looking at the cup, we recognize that, that this, is, this is what is represented by this, by this fruit. And when we when we look at that and when we drink from it, we remind ourselves that were it not for him, were it not for his death in our place, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. There would be no hope of heaven. There would be no hope for anything. And so as you take that cup in your hand, as you see that, that fruit of the vine in it, as you see that color, allow that to be a visual reminder of the great love that Christ has demonstrated for you in dying for you. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for shedding your blood for our sins, for providing us the only hope that we have for eternal life. My prayer this morning is that you would continue to warm our hearts to that. By your Holy Spirit, you continue to draw others who have yet to humble themselves before you. This would be a reminder to them yet another time when they have been extended the grace and mercy of Christ. I pray that that would happen for your glory and for your honor in Christ's name.
blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins. Take and drink. So we've been reminded of the passion of our God, of his patience, and his kindness to us, the passion of Christ who would come in his love for us and would give his life as a sacrifice for us. So this morning, as we conclude our time together, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song that declares that. It's also going to serve as an opportunity for you, as an invitation for you. It's an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel that is so clearly displayed in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, to give you an opportunity to, to once more humble yourself before God and to allow Him to become your Savior. So I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you're here this day and you would like to know more about Jesus, I would love to talk with you further. So would Pastor Ted. So would these men sitting on the front row. We'd love to be able to explain to you the, the necessities of, of, of what Christ has done in your life. Maybe you'd just like to spend some time in prayer before the Lord this morning, thanking Him for His goodness. This is your opportunity there too. Maybe you'd like to have one of us pray for you about something else. We'd love to do that. However the Spirit of God is moving in your heart and in your life today, we want to give you this opportunity to respond and even to just stand and sing from the depths of your soul. So let's do that this morning. Let's stand as we sing together. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become His righteousness. He humbled Himself and he carried the cross love so amazing love so amazing jesus messiah Jesus Messiah. 